Welcome to Valley Community Church. Our Sunday sermons are available online to help you grow in your Christian faith. Our messages are practical and applicable truths from the Bible for today's life challenges. And now, today's message. One of the coolest things I had a chance to do was uh, be a part of a middle school where, thankfully, it was really neat. It worked out. The principal and a few of the teachers were Christians, knew that I was the pastor literally right down the street. They brought me in to help develop a character education program with a very select group of 7th and 8th graders, hand-picked. We'll just call them. They didn't use the term at-risk. They said at-promise. They looked on the positive side. But basically, the at-risk kids is what I was given, about 10 7th graders, 10 8th graders, and I got a half hour a week, not a lot of time, to develop character. So, I, And I'm working with the state here. I mean, this is kind of going to become a statewide program, but they bring in the youth pastor to do it, so here I am. I'm going to be as redundant as possible working with these kids who need a lot of help, not very many positive uh, voices speaking into their life, and here, here's my job for a half hour a week to instill character. I was incredibly redundant, as I said. We're gonna, I'm going to teach them basically one thing all year. They're kind of twofold, two things. That character is the inner strength to do what's right, and you don't start off with it, by the way, because it's always, as you and I both know, even past seventh and eighth grade, it's always easier to do the wrong thing as opposed to the right thing. And that's really it. That was my doctrine of original sin, just planting it into the public school system. This is what you kids need to get. You need character. A lot of these kids were strong on the outside. They had no strength on the inside, and they needed to overcome because when push comes to shove, they're going to push, and they're going to shove, and they're going to do the wrong thing, and that's usually why they ended up with me. So about a year into this program, we changed the name from Character Education. That's not the coolest title. Kids don't want to come to that. So we called it the Rise Up Program, and I actually created a bit of a a call and response mantra with that kind of thought process. So I would walk into the classroom, and I would say, we will, and they'd repeat back, rise up. Let's practice that real quick. We will... Very good. We will? Oh, you got it. You are, I feel your character just growing. You're ready to roll right now. So, you know, that matters. That matters with adults, but really with 7th and 8th graders, that starts to matter. And what I would actually start to make them do is when I'd walk in the room and we'd, we'd do that mantra, I would literally make them rise up. I'd make them stand up. And there were some big, I mean, we're in Hawaii, some Polynesian kids. I had like a 300-pound 7th grade Samoan kid in part of that program who always got in trouble for, you know, you would guess, gets picked on, just here's how he resolves conflict right there. That's, that's all he's ever seen. And I would make him, that was the hardest part of the class, making him st- rise up. But that was the point. Much easier to stay seated always takes something on the inside, some strength as well as on the, to, to, to rise up. And that was what, and so, so, you know, a half hour a week, I don't care how good of a youth pastor you are, how good of a teacher you are, a half hour a week's never really going to cut it. So here's the advantage I had, though. I'm, a, I'm the youth pastor in the community, so I'd see these kids all throughout the community throughout the week, and I would make it a part of my job description to do just that. So I'd see them messing with somebody in McDonald's and, and stealing a soda from McDonald's. I'd see them at the basketball courts getting in fights. I'd see them. I remember one kid was, was literally about to graffiti, kind of tag his little semi-gang thing on the wall. And when I'd see them, I would just roll up to them in my car and was literally yell out my window, we will. Kid would drop the spray can, run away, rise up. You know, 
It was in there. We were getting it into there. I remember one time I walked into the community. There was a, a big fight was about to go. I mean, this is kind of a typical thing in this particular community. And I walked up and I saw about, you know, it was 15 versus 15, kind of a little gang color thing going on. And, and they're about to fight. And I see a few of my kids. So I walk right into the middle of the mob and they're already pushing. And I just started saying, we will. And kids are grabbing collars. Rise up. Oh, sorry. Rise up and running away. And I'm breaking up fights with this. So it's start, slowly starting to, to, to get into these kids' hearts. Right? And, and think about this. What, what, was, what was I really trying to do at this point? My goal was to be perhaps the only person, but at least some positive voice in their life ca- calling them to something. I, I wanted to be somebody who was calling them to, to, to be someone greater than, than really what everybody else was allowing them to settle for. I was trying to, to, to do over, over an extended period of time, create an environment where they, where they could remember who at least I was calling them to be. And then ideally, because of some character developed in them, enable them to then walk that out. And that matters. That, that matters. I'm not going to talk the, the whole day about mentoring 7th and 8th graders, but I just wanted to start off with that because we're going to actually spend uh, the rest of our time in, in just one chapter of the Bible, 1 First Samuel. In 1 Samuel, we're introduced to probably the most famous character in the Old Testament. His name's His name's David. And we're not introduced to him as the king that we typically think of him as. We're introduced to him as really a, a lowly shepherd boy. I mean, the last on the run. The one that the dad doesn't even invite to, when the priest is coming. He doesn't even invite him, forgets about him, leaves him in the field. That, that's our introduction to David. And then we know early on that he's anointed as the future king. There's already the first king of Israel set in place, Saul. And David's anointed to be the next one as a young teenager. I mean, here he is waiting, and then we, we sit down to follow his journey through the book of 1 Samuel. We see this kind of supernatural leap into stardom, right, with the slain of Goliath, but then he's still got to wait to become all that God has called him to become, and then we see he kind of stepped into this role as a, a musician, and one of the things that you see, what's unique about David and why I want to talk about him today is early on in his life, of course, there's some very famous mishaps and mistakes and t- terrible decisions by David later on. But, but certainly early on, he's one of the few Old Testament characters, Bible characters, really, that has a pretty firm grasp on who God has called him to be. And typically, that memory, it's almost as if he can, you know what's unique? I was thinking about this, the anointing oil that Samuel poured on his head. One of your senses that, that just triggers memory the best is smell and feel is right there. So it's almost as if sometimes where he's got a decision to make, he can... He can, he can think back and s- literally smell that anointing oil. And what's that do? That triggers him back to, wait, I'm, I'm called to be the king. I'm called to be the chosen one. The decision I make today could either derail that calling or set it way off course, or I could, I could, I could make the right response right here. And you see that about him. You see this exemplified most, I think, in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. Very interesting passage where he's got a chance to take out Saul. Saul, who's been chasing him, Saul, who's been, I mean, just, he's, David still works for Israel. He's still fighting battles for Israel, and yet he's on the run from his boss because his boss is jealous and, right, he's throwing spears at him and all kinds of crazy things. If you've seen the Veggie Tales, it fills it in great. I mean, I think that's a great episode. But anyway, so you, you know that David's on the run, and he's finally got a chance to take out King Saul. All of his ragamuffin band of followers think this is the opportunity. I don't know if you know the story. Saul comes into a cave to literally relieve himself, go to the bathroom. David's right there, and instead of taking out, taking out the Lord's anointed, 
and really stepping into his rightful place as king, what's he do? He just cuts off a piece of the robe. And then he actually feels bad about that. He feels the conviction of that. He lays down, humbles himself before Saul just after that, prostrate before him and says, I, I shouldn't even have done that. I mean, you see this incredible humility, this incredible restraint, knowing that, yes, I will be king one day, but I, you don't do that by taking out the guy. This isn't mafia style. That's not how God has called us to do this. You see that in chapter 24. In chapter 26, you see something incredibly similar. He's got another chance to take out Saul. And you would think, okay, first time, do it God's way. Second time, this must be God's way. Put a spear through his head. He doesn't again. He actually leaves the spear right by his head. And just to let Saul know, look, God has given, you, given me an opportunity to take you out twice, and I haven't stepped into it. You need, to, you need to rise up yourself and become, I mean, this is really what's going on. And then, and then the, the narrator, the way, that's why I love the Bible. The way it's written, we have this incredibly unique passage right in the midst of 24 and 26, which, again, I think are two incredibly courageous, character-filled moments for David. We get a glimpse into something that's it's just a unique story that's tucked right in the middle, on purpose. Your Bible's written on purpose, by the way. That, that really displays this interaction that David has with two people he's never met before. A beast of a man that we're about to read about, as well as what we'll describe, the Bible describes as a beauty of a woman. Let's dive right into chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. Let me start off with the second part of verse 1. It says this, Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of, of Paran, and, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich and had 3,000 sheep, and a thousand goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of that man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Let me just kind of sum up what this has said. Very simple, but all this matters for context. We start off hearing about a prominent businessman, and scripture says that kind of his, 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 what he owns, his, his, what he owns precedes his name which is kind of unique. When you see that in Scripture, it's usually not a good thing when it talks about what he owns versus who he is. It goes on to later describe who he is, and really, his, he, he's, he's very much a, a fool. Actually, I, I don't just say that because the story is going to describe him. Wait, look at this. Nabal literally means fool in the Bible. Not sure what his mom was thinking, but that's how this thing reads, okay? Actually, Psalm 14.1, which it's not on the screen, but Psalm 14.1, you've maybe heard this verse. It says, a fool in his heart says there is no God. You know how that reads in the Hebrew? A, a, a Nabal in his heart says there's no God. I mean, if you say there's no God, that is, that is the start and end point of foolishness right off the bat. Well, that's who this guy is. And look at how he's described. He's described as harsh and badly behaved. And we're going to see that played out over the next 40-something verses here in this chapter. He's also uh, referred to as a Calebite, which at least communicates two things. Uh, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew, Calebite it talks about that it means dog-like behavior. Again, sorry if your name is Caleb, but I'm pretty sure your parents didn't research that before they named you that. So it really means, like that's what Calebite renders in the Hebrew. But here's what it also obviously means. He's a descendant of Caleb. He's an Israelite. And I just want you to hold on to that as we go through this story. He's not some foreigner. Uh, this this is an in-house guy right here, a brother to say, of David. And then we come across this woman. We're introduced to her for the first time. Her name is Abigail. Much different meaning to her name. Her name means the father's joy or the father's delight. She's described as discerning and beautiful. 
Discerning is used for David a few chapters earlier. That's quite an honor to be kind of put next to David, especially a woman in Scripture. That's pretty impressive. And beautiful is only used to describe two other women in Scripture. You've got Rachel and Esther and here Abigail. So she's described in a very unique way early on as we're introduced to her. And we have no idea how they ended up together. I doubt Nabal was a charmer. I'm sure this was somewhat of an arranged marriage. I mean, I'll be honest, I have no problem admitting that I married up when I married my wife, but this is astronomically marrying up to say, right? I mean, let's think, this, I mean, come on now, this is, this is, uh, this is Abigail and, and Nabal's. I mean, we think that's like Pastor David and Andrea. Let's just be honest. I mean, the, the, the gap is just so beyond, is that okay? Okay, anyways, I'm gonna try that all morning and see how that goes. But these guys laughed really hard over here, so I don't know if you want to pay attention to who's in that group and just, you know, maybe not any future elders or something like that. But this is incredible that these two ended up together. You're going to see how this plays out perfectly in this story. We also uh, see that, of course, it's sheep shearing time. That may not mean anything to you. It didn't mean anything to me the first time I read it, but this is actually a very important part of the story. What happens in sheep shearing time two times a year, that is when the prominent businessmen literally take an inventory of everything they've got. And if, you, if you're a fool, you glory in it, and you throw a big party, and you basically get yourself back down to zero, and then shear the sheep again. And you're going to see that that's how this is playing out. Now, here's, here's the unique thing. The few verses that we're not going to read goes on to say that, that David and his men hear that Nabal is shearing his sheep. Now, David and Nabal have never met, but they kind of have met, because David remembers back. Wait a second, Carmel? Wait a second, Nabal, the sheep and the shepherds, didn't we fight battles there? And here's how this would go. You'd fight a battle and there would happen. I mean, shepherding doesn't stop even though there's wars going on. So David and his men would be fighting a battle on one side. The foes of Israel would be coming against Israel. They don't care who they're going to come against. If they see shepherds, if they see sheep, they slaughter everybody. But David and his men, many a time, some scholars think up to a year, have protected people like Nabal. People like his sheep, and people, and people, not people like his sheep, but shepherds like his and sheep like his. So here's how this works. There's an expectation. It's not a Hebrew law, but there's more of a cultural expectation that if I've fought a battle and protected your sheep and your shepherds, that when it's sheep shearing time, we're going to come ask for a little bit of a payoff. I mean, here you are glorying in the provision that you've acquired over that year, I think we are entitled to some. So again, it's, it's kind of like a tip. Like you don't legally have to leave a tip, but the expectation is, well, of course, you did a great job as our waitress today. Here's a tip. So what David does is he sends some of his messengers. Might have even sent some of his mighty warriors. It says he actually sent 10. So that's kind of what the expectation is. I'm sending you 10 messengers to, to go to you and say, hey, whatever you have at hand. That's literally the word. It's a very kind of it's just an expectation. Whatever you have at hand, would you provide for us? It's actually a time of a feast. So there's an expectation. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of unwritten expectations going on here. David sends some men, messengers. Hey, would you like to give anything to us? By the way, we're the guys that saved your lives multiple times. It just makes sense that you would provide for us out of this bounty that you've acquired because if we didn't protect you, you, didn't, you wouldn't have any of this. Does that make sense? We're catching up with the story right here? That's basically what the next few verses say. Let's look down in verse 10 and read how Nabal responds to David's messengers. You want to see what a fool says? Here we go. And Nabal answered David's servants. Who is David? Who, who is this son of Jesse? Now, now, make no mistake. Nabal knows exactly who David is. Everyone knows who David is. 
David's songs are all over the radio. He's got like a billion Twitter followers. I mean, David is, you can't get more famous. He's more famous than Saul in many ways. Matter of fact, that's what this, this remix is about a song that says just that floating around. This is very much a slap in the face. This would be like if you're an NFL fan, but you hate the Broncos. You'd say, who, who is Peyton Manning? Really? I mean, who, who is this son of Archie? You know, who's this brother of Eli? You know who he is, but you're just, to spite your friend who's a Bronco fan, you're just, saying, you're just saying crazy stuff like that. Now, your life's not on the line like Nabal's about to be. Look, look at this. I mean, come on, everybody know this is a fool. Let's just follow the story. This is a fool being true to his character, being true to his name. Look at the rest of the verse. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their master. This even proves more that he knows who he is. Because this is really the slap in the face. Because technically, that describes David in the harshest way you can. Well, there's a lot of runaway slaves these days. How am I supposed to keep track? Oh, man. I mean, really, that's who David is. He's under the king's authority still, but he's running for his life. He's got these people following him. He's still trying to be loyal to his nation and, and serve and protect. And, and yet he is technically on the run he goes look how selfish you ever use sentences that have my in them a lot and i this is how you know you might be a fool look at this shall i take verse 11 my bread and my water and my meat that i have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from i do not know where again no surprise this is a fool acting very much like a fool now let's Let's get to David's response. So, so the messengers stand there. Probably, again, some of them could have been some of these mighty warriors we read about in David's mighty army. And so, so they're standing there, and they hear Nabal talk to them like this. And they're like probably like reaching down for their weapon, like, are you serious? Do you, have, you have no idea. So they restrain themselves. That's the message you want us to take to David. You really, is that it? Anything else? Any addendums? Not, okay, we're going to go back and tell David exactly what you just told us. That's what happens. They go back. And they tell David exactly how Nabal completely disrespected him in front of his, these 10 men. They go back, to, look at how David responds. Are you ready for this? And David said to his men, verse 13, every man strap on his sword. Oh my gosh. I say it's, you say on. It's, oh, it's on. Oh, it's on, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, that's the instantaneous response. Get your swords. And, and these are, think about who these guys are. This is a ragamuffin. These guys, fugitives, I mean, they, are, they will do whatever David says. Whatever. Da so what does it say? They strap on their swords. And, and David, guess what? He's like, I'm going to. Matter of fact, I'm going to lead this. Uh, David strapped on his sword. Absolutely amazing. Now, here's the tension. We're all, we already have some tension here in the story, but I, I, you see the obvious tension. I want you to see the underlying tension, because if you're anything like me, part of you starts to get pretty excited. Like, these are the movies I like to watch, right? The guy gets dissed, and let's go get him. Let's go bury that fool. Let's Denzel this guy. Like, I don't know about you, but that, that's kind of how I typically am. Did I just use Denzel as a verb? I think I just did. So you're, you have, feel free to do that. I'm sure it's in the Bible somewhere, but no. That's what we're thinking, but let's get beyond that. Let's imagine you're just like a little Jewish boy reading this for the first time. You already know about King David, and you already know what it means. You already know what it should mean to be a man of character. You already know what it should mean to respond as the chosen future king. And you start to say, "Wait a second, David. You, you can't. You've dealt with bigger fools than this. You can't react this way." 
You can't just, you can't just go out and kill somebody. And by the way, this isn't like a Philistine calling out your, your God or something. This is, a, this is a Calebite. You can't just march in there and have an in-house slaughter like this. That's the tension that, that you're starting to feel as the original, if you were an original reader of this. So David's charging towards Nabal. He's got these 400 armed warriors heading to slaughter. Let's just be honest, maybe a few dozen unarmed shepherds. It's not like Nabal's got his own army. So he's the best of the best of the fighting force heading towards a few shepherds and one fool as their captain. And it says that he leaves behind 200 people to remain with the baggage. So David's got some stuff. This isn't just like, I need a provision and you didn't. This is all about pride. This is all about respect at this point. And the narrator comes at this point now brings back Abigail. We don't know anything yet about Abigail other than she's beautiful and she's discerning and she's obviously married to a fool. And here's what's happened, just to move on through the story. One of Nabal's uh, men sees Nabal interacting with David's, uh, uh, the, the messengers and, and just standing off in the distance and sees Nabal completely disrespect these messengers. And in his mind, I mean, he might be looking at these guys saying, wait a second, I recognize them. They protected us. For over a year, what is my boss doing? What is my fool of a boss? And if you read the context, that's what he said. My boss is such a fool. He doesn't run to Nabal to try to work this out. Who's he go to? He goes to Abigail. I'm going to go to Abigail. She's much better to look at, and she might actually listen. So I'm going to go over to Abigail, and I'm going to try to get Abigail to save all of us from being slaughtered. And that's where the story gets picked up. He goes to Abigail and he, he tells Abigail, look, your, your husband, the fool, is going to get us killed. So Abigail, it says, literally makes haste. It's interesting. That, that's the same. We saw how David's quick reaction was. Now we get to see Abigail's quick reaction. Abigail made, Abigail made, haste, or made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared because there's already a party being set just to, for this guy to glory in, in his wealth and five says of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. And I mean, she's beautiful, discerning, and she can cook. Is she not from the South or what? I mean, let's just be, just kidding. I don't know if that's appropriate, but I'm just saying. But so, so she takes this overabundance. This really is. This is more, according to scholars, this is way more than the, than the original payout should have been. She just piles it all there, and she's going to intercept now the angry anointed one. She knows who David is. And she's going to do everything she can to, to get in front of his path to try to basically save everybody. That's, that's her heart. And, and David's rage is building as he's coming down towards the valley, towards Nabal, towards the shepherds. He's going to take out everybody. And now the narrator goes back to David and lets us into, I think this is so unique, lets us into his mind. Let's us into literally what David's thinking as he's writing this. And this is so important because this is usually where we get in trouble. We start thinking crazy thoughts because we forget who God has called us to be. Look at this where it goes. Now David said, verse 21, now David, now David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness. I love that fellow thing there. Have you ever been so mad at somebody you can't even say their name? Right? Who's this guy think he is? Who? My dad? You know, you, don't, you, just, you can't even say the person. And his name's fool, so you'd think that'd be a, like, let me just leverage that and say who's this fool think he is, but who's this fellow think he is? So that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me, look at what he's doing now, and he has returned me evil for good. 
Now, I want you to see how your Bible works. This, I think this is so neat. Okay, we're, we're right here in the Bible, in the middle of chapter 25. And I already told you a little bit about what happened in chapter 24, but I just want you to, to visually see this. If, if you just go back to the middle of the previous page, okay, these stories are sequential. And if you go back to the middle, you'll see something so unique, literally even about that own phrase right there. I told you that David had humbled himself after cutting off a piece of the foolish king named Saul's garment. He literally humbles himself. He has no expectations of respect from a king, a foolish king named Saul. Just a chapter ago, and look at how Saul responds to David. He said to David, after David had humbled himself, admitting he could have killed him, but didn't, and even feels convicted about that. Saul says to David, you are more righteous than I. Uh, for, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. It's the same phrase. So, so wait a second. You're telling me, David, just a chapter later, just a chapter later, you, 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 you're mad at this fool. I mean, think about this. David, how did you go? How did you go from not expecting respect from a foolish king named Saul to all of a sudden demanding respect from a fool named Fool? <laughs> you ever have a really good week in the Lord and you're just, I mean, you're cruising everything? And then the next week, it's like, you're not even, like, who are you? <laughs> your wife's looking at you. Your kids are like, I don't really want to come home. I mean, you know, you, what, what's, what's shifted? There are probably a lot of details into what shifted, but at the core of that, I think sometimes, again, we forget who, who we're truly called to be. We forget who's calling us, who actually wants to give us the grace to be that person he's calling us to be, and we don't tap into everything he's given us to walk that calling out and that is exactly I mean, that is exactly what is exemplified right here in these really these three stories back to back to back david is tapped into something that is not even nearly near close to to what god is about so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him he's returned me evil uh, for good again david you're, you're way off you're way off your perspective is so far off so we had in this new year i've just been praying that god would give me a really a fresh perspective on everything and what I mean by that is not just my, his perspective. That changes everything. Anything you're going through, God, what are you doing in this? What, what are you trying to get out of me in this? I used to think wisdom meant, God, tell me what to do. And I think that's kind of wisdom 101. I, I think like wisdom 401, where we really need to get to, is when we, we don't ask the question, God, what do you want me to do? We ask, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing and, and, and what, are you trying to, what are you trying to get out of me? What's the, what's the proper response you want to, what's the character you want to build into me during this time? I had a mentor who used to say this all the time. You'll know you have a servant's heart by how you respond when people treat you like one. You'll know if you got, I mean, really, that's the, bottom, that's the baseline right there. You'll know if you have a, everybody wants a servant's heart, right? That's who we're, but how do you respond when someone actually just treats you like a servant? Let me take it a step further. You'll know you have a humble heart, which I would think that's, the, that's what we're all shooting for. You'll know you have a humble heart by how you respond when you're humiliated. What's that first, what's that anchor you grab for? Is it everything in you or is it, is it, is it Christ, I need help? <laughs> I, 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 need you to, I need you to shine through right here. Humble me. Look how far David takes this. Verse 22, God 
do so to the enemies of God. Wait a second. He remembered God? Oh, yeah. He's praying. (laughs) He's praying from the wrong side of a prayer. You don't want to pray like this. He's saying God. He didn't forget God. Here's what he forgot. He forgot his his part in God's plan. Sometimes you you don't forget God, but you forget your purpose (laughs) according to who God has called you to be. Look at this prayer. This didn't make the Psalms, thankfully. God, do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. He's making a vow. He's saying, if I don't kill them all, kill me. I mean, you can't get more angry than this. And the word for male here, it actually translates those who urinate while standing. I just thought you'd want to know that. But really what it is, it's a derogatory. It's basically, he's cussing. It's, a, it's the cuss word. It's the equivalent of the cuss word here. You're so, I mean, he's, just, he's way beyond who he's truly called to be. And he's making a vow, which is a big no-no in Scripture, saying, look, if I don't kill them all, you, you can take me out. This is a terrible prayer. This did not, again, make the Psalms. This is unbelievable. So he, with this rage in his head and in his heart, he is riding down into this final little valley before he's about to have this literally a bloodbath slaughter. for all. He's going to kill all the sheep probably. I don't know what he's going to do, but he's definitely going to take out Nabal. He's going to find Nabal. He's probably going to torture Nabal, kill all of his shepherds. He would kill all the, whoever else is there. He's taking them all out. And then all of a sudden, as he comes down this ridge, he's literally coming, going through this last little valley here. And he sees the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. Just think about that. He's, he's just, I mean, he, and, and here, look at what she does. Look at what she, this is absolutely amazing. Look at, look at what, what she does. She, she lays down. She, she, lay, she literally lies prostrate down in front of these raging horses. This is a beautifully discerning move by Abigail. She's already calculated all this. I'm either going to get killed in the slaughter or I've got a chance. <laughs> and she forces David to do one of two things. He can either, like, he can either be like the savage, like he's acting, and plow right over her. And, and again, he's, he's got a little bit of a, a thing for beautiful women, so I think he's going to stop right there. But so, so he can either plow right over her, or he's forced to do what? To, to, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's literally forced to recalibrate. And that's what God's doing here. He's forced to pull back and stop. And look at what she, look at the first thing out of her mouth, verse 24. Let your, no, I'm sorry. On me alone, verse 24, my Lord, be the guilt. What are you talking about? You're going to take on, I mean, the husband should be the one who covers the wife. The wife right here is going, on me alone. Everything in my foolish, on me alone, let me be the, I mean, this is crazy talk. This is crazy. So David's like, what are you talking about? You had nothing to do with this. And so before he can even, he's just recalibrating in this moment, thinking, who is this beautiful woman? And why is she talking like this? And, and then she goes on to say, let your servant speak into your ears and hear the words. Hear the words of your servant. Give me a chance. A lowly woman, give me a chance to speak into the ears of the future king. What's she doing here? I mean, she's risking everything. Let me, let me throw out some seed to see what kind of soil your, your heart has maybe not in this previous moment but maybe truly deep in there let's see if you can get this again so far in this passage just just take the story for what it is we've seen a fool named fool acting exactly like a fool we've seen now a beautiful woman acting beautifully discerning as she's described truly the father's delight any father would be oh my goodness my daughter rocks this is incredible but we've also seen the chosen one acting nothing like the chosen one Acting, literally, what's he doing? He's playing a fool's game. He's playing right into a, a fool's folly. That's what's happening 
in this moment. And it's as if Abigail's going to come along and, and you maybe do a little drive-by. We will. And just to see, let's just see if he catches this thing. She gives a mini sermon. It's literally the longest speech given by a woman in all of Scripture. It's eight verses long. It's incredibly poetic. She's done her homework. It's like she's been preparing her whole life to give this message. It's 153 Hebrew words, and really her big idea to David is my big idea to you today. She basically says, don't be a fool. You can't go through with this. This would stain your future crown. This would soil, I mean, your conscience would be devastated if you went through. You've dealt with bigger fools than this. Don't, Don't let my husband pull you in to his trap. She goes on to say, verse 29, look at this. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound. Lord, lowercase l, speaking of David. The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. David, God's got your back. God's always had your back. Think back. Are you kidding me? All the, all the battles you've been through, all, you're going to let this guy ruin everything? You're going to let your response in this moment just destroy everything that God has put into you? You're really going to go? Don't do that. God's got you. Look at what she goes on to say. Talk about a preacher. I mean, this is good preaching right here. Look at this metaphor. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Are you kidding me? She's preaching right here. David, remember every way that God has taken care of you. The miraculous. Don't do this. Don't do this. This is is what Abigail is is doing. And this is absolutely amazing how David responds. Again, it's this voice of correction. Being a Christian isn't all. Being a Christian is not about being right. It's about how you respond when you're corrected. And a lot of times that voice of correction comes out of nowhere. And hopefully we've cultivated an environment where we've got some correction that was kind of built in, and obviously the Word of God is that. But, but when the Holy Spirit just, no, 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 that's wrong. Or somebody you don't even know comes across. That, you've got to respond. That's that humility. And, and look at how David responds here. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He's got his perspective back instantly. He sees the sovereign hand of God in all this. Look at this. Who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. Then he praises for gift. Oh my goodness, you just stepped out in major faith. <laughs> I could have plowed right. And blessed be you. He speaks a blessing upon her who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. I love that. I think that, that actually translates into the New Testament pretty well. What do we try to do? We try to work out salvation on our own when all that work's already been done. <laughs> our job on this side of the cross is just properly respond to everything God's doing in us, not work out anything on our own. We can't work that out. He, he's done all the work. Lean into the work that... He's already done and is doing in you. He, 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 he realizes that, again, God has used him to be the hand of vengeance many times. But this isn't one of them. This isn't even close to being one of those moments. He can't get through this and look back and say, oh, I thought this was you calling me to do it, God. Not a chance. So, so he admits he's wrong. He receives the proper payment, which is actually proper protocol there, and he sends Abigail home in peace. She goes home to tell her drunk husband, yes, he's drunk, fool will be a fool, and she says, basically, I saved you. She can't even tell him. She waits till the next morning, in the morning, the next verse here, when the wine had gone out of Nabal. Not sure what that process is like. Maybe you've been there, but anyways. So it flo- his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. How insecure is he? He can't even accept that, wait a second, my wife just saved all of us. And his heart dies within him. And again, look at at this story. And he became as a, there it is, stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal 
and, and he died. Maybe you knew how this story was going to end, but imagine reading that for the first time. You go, wow, how good is God? We'd call it poetic justice, right? Nabal gets the grave. David gets the girl. <laughs> that's what it goes on to say. And really what that's about, a lot of that's about uh, expansion of the, the, the kingdom as it was understood back then. Because it means you get the goods and the land and the resources. You know, this side of the cross, it's not about goods and land and resources. That's not really how we extend the kingdom. It's more about grace and love and righteousness put in us by God. And, and we, we walk out our calling. We remember who God's called us to be and we respond appropriately. Let me bring this all home. So really, what am I talking about? Well, a fool's game is this. A fool's game is stepping away from God's call on your life. And if you're pursuing the caller unto, unto, unto catching your call, you never chase down your call. Chase down the caller, and you'll get your call. <laughs> you get near Jesus, you'll always be doing what he's called you to do. Okay? If you're doing that, you will be tempted away from that. Absolutely. That's what temptation, all temptation is. Temptation serves one purpose, to get you away from the purpose of God for your life. And I mean, you know, purpose and the purpose of God and the presence of God are very similar. <laughs> if you're not in the purpose of God, you're probably not near the presence of God. And if you're not near the presence of God, you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance to become who he's called you to be. So we're not, we're not going to play a fool's game. What do we want to do? We want to have a worthy walk. And that means remembering who God has called you to be and, and walking it out. And, and walking that out. I love this verse, Ephesians 4.1, as we wrap this up. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, this is Paul, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. If you get an email from me, that's my tagline. It's not sincerely, it's not yours truly, it's walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Well, I'm still figuring out my calling. Yeah, well, you got a glimpse of it? Walk towards that. <laughs> walk in a manner. Start with love God and love each other and love the world. Start there and, and walk that out. And I just saw this this morning. I was looking over these notes. Look at that. A prisoner. A prisoner. You know what the proper perspective does? Perspective can actually take your pain and give it a purpose. That's incredible. I'm a prisoner, but not just a prisoner. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Paul, you're in jail. You're crazy. I mean, you can flip anything. He can flip the script on anything. That's right. I, I'm a prisoner for the Lord as I write this letter to you guys. I mean, you, you throw your, it's not pain, it's purpose. It's all about purpose. It's all a part of the purpose of what God is doing in me. So if you haven't got a New Year's resolution, I'll give you one. Here you go. 2016, big idea. Cultivate a lifestyle that helps you remember who God's called you to be and enables. I almost want to change that. We could write empowers empowers you to walk it out daily. What am I talking about? I'm talking about get these, get in the word, and get around people, and pray and fast, and serve if God's calling you to serve in this season, or go through the leadership. Do everything this a church, a healthy church is trying to get you to cultivate. That. It's got to be a lifestyle. Avail yourself to God so that it enables you to do it. What's that? That's power. You don't, you're not going to find that on your own. God's going to put that in you as you spend time with him and his people. And you're going to be able to walk. Is it going to be perfect? No. Part of that means repent. <laughs> repent a lot when you get off track and when you get correction from, from the places that may come out of nowhere and properly respond to who God has called you to be. I don't even know how we're doing on time. Are we, are we over? Okay. All right, let me pray. I'm going to pray and then Pastor David's going to close us out. Are we good? All right, let's pray into this. God, thank you so much. 
You've put a call on all of our lives. And I know specifically, we may still be figuring that out. I'm, I'm still figuring that out. But I know I'm a step closer today, God, because you've, you've enabled me to surround myself with people who, who remind me that I'm called to rise up. I'm called to rise up, God. As the song says, we've sung it a few times before, that I rise because you have risen. You've already risen. And now I, just, I rise as a response to, to your risenness, to your lordship over my life. Would you fill us all with the grace we need this year and beyond to become the people that you've called us to be? Lord, help us simplify this and not try to overcomplicate this in the, in the 10 steps we got to do this week. Just, just one or two things, Lord that bring this home? What's it mean for every individual under the sound of my voice to remember who you've called them to be specifically and to walk that out? Just, just a step forward each and every day. And when we slip up, Lord, we go right back to you, right back to the people who love us, right back to this church, and get back on that path, that clear path that you're calling us to. We need you, we trust you, Lord. Pray this in your name, amen.